Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Kaboom! If you thought four hours a day, 1,200 minutes a week was enough, think again. He's the last remnants of the old republic. A sole bastion of fairness. He treats crackheads in the ghetto gutter the same as the rich pill poppers in the penthouse. Wow. The clearinghouse of hot takes break free for something special. The Fifth Hour with Ben Maller starts right now. In the air everywhere. We are back at it again. The weekend is here on a Friday as we kick off festivities here. The Fifth Hour. If you're new to the show, we have some new people listening. I understand Especially today, that probably not normally listeners, uh, this is a spinoff of the overnight show we do five nights a week, the Ben Mather Show, and it is only in the podcast format. And unlike the shackles of overnight sports talk radio, we can go anywhere, right? We have the whole landscape that we can go any place we want on this podcast. And we do this eight days a week. Uh, Podcasts drop on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Only available in the podcast format. Not broadcast on commercial radio. And we are joined again by uh, west of the 405, David Gascon. <laughs> with his own sound effects. Coming here. This is uh, this is going to be extra spicy hot today, Gascon. Oh, I, I am preparing for the negative feedback that we're probably going to get, but I I'm okay with that. I'm good, I'm, man. I'm fine I'm, with it. Yeah. I'm excited. So we've we've actually had uh, our our guest on, on deck for about uh, two months, and um, so obviously scheduling and whatnot needed to come into one, and it finally did. And uh, I'm excited about it, especially because of the time that we are in right now and also with the dead period of the National Football League. Um, I'm geeked up about it. 
Yeah, so every Friday we try to have someone on. You know, we've had a lot of radio friends on that have come in here and hung out with us. Sports radio guys, our colleagues at Fox Sports Radio, we've had in here. We had a comedian last week. We've had an eclectic group of people that have come in. We've had former athletes, and yeah. uh, now we can add from the world of academia. And not often, you know, I'm I'm just a dumb sports guy that I get to talk to somebody who's educated and worldly and all of that. But I I am excited here. Now, before we welcome in who we're going to chat with, I I must put the standard disclaimer out. (laughs) If you are easily triggered by commentary about society and wokeness and cancel culture and that type of thing, I get it if you can't handle a pushback against that, this would not be the podcast for you if you're closed-minded. But if you're willing to listen and hear and you want to – I want to hear what this man has to say. We're going to talk to you here in a second. It's a perfect podcast because it really resonates with a lot of the things we've been battling in the sporting world, right? With the wokeness and the wokey McWoke, as we like to call it in these parts, and social media with the what's real and what's not real. Like it's all tied together. So we're going to get into as much of that as we can. And uh, the person who is joining us today, a well-respected figure. On uh, on social media, he's been teaching. He's he's tenured. Doctor Gad Sad is his name. He is the author of the Parasitic Mind: How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. But he is a Lebanese Canadian and uh, a very public intellectual. He is the professor of marketing at the John Molson School of Business at Montreal's Concordia University. He has. Spent time at several other institutions uh, over the years, uh, Gascon, and I'm looking forward to chatting with Doctor Doctor Sat here and getting into a number of different things. Yes, yeah. I have. Do you have any friends that are Lebanese? Uh, I had when I was when I was younger. There were a few uh, kids in school, but I, I and currently n- my circle of friends I don't. No, I have one. I, I went to uh, a small Catholic elementary school in my hometown, uh, San Pedro, and the rival school, which is called Mary Star. Uh, I played up against a guy like flag football as a kid, but this this kid who was like eleven or twelve at the time looked like a full grown man, just built like a box, had a receding hairline, sideburns, and a mustache. And I thought, man, this guy, there's no way this dude is is my age. And then we graduated elementary school, we turned into the same high school, and we became really good friends. And I we call him the Moose. His name's Maurice, but we call him the Moose. Um he showed me a fascinating scar when we got to learn about him and, and obviously uh, his family, and he showed me his stomach, and he's got like washboard, six-board abs, and a scar in the middle of his stomach. And I said, Moose, what's that scar from? And he said, it's a, it's from surgery. I said, from what? And he said, there's a bullet lodged next to my spine. Whoa. And the doctors couldn't get it out. He was shot as a kid in Lebanon, and wow. his parents obviously fleed Lebanon uh, I think when he was like three or four years of age and came to the United States, um, th- his parents have gone back on, on several occasions, but obviously it's, it's extremely dangerous. But uh, the moose uh, is the one friend that I had that's Lebanese and still have, and he's a great guy and uh, he's personable, he's charismatic, and he's just like uh, the doc. So 
Um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited to have uh, the doc in the house. Yeah, he's got a YouTube channel, The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D. Hundreds of thousands of followers on there. He's uh, very popular on Twitter as well. And he's done some big podcasts. Like, he's really coming down. I mean, he's he's... He's hanging out in the mud with the common people here because he's been on Joe Rogan and uh, Dave Rubin, who we've had on, Jordan Peterson. These are some big, major figures in the podcast world, and he's done all those shows, and he's he's uh, coming to our level here, which is cool. And he's in a different forum because he's taking shots from everybody, but then as much incoming fire as he gets, he throws it right back, especially at some of the celebrities, some of the athletes. Um, he's not afraid to spar at all. All right, well, let's get into it. We welcome in now to the fifth hour with Ben Maller and uh, David Gascon, Dr. Gad Sad from Montreal uh, joining us. And before we get into the nuts and bolts of this, Doc, uh, I, I did read that you spent some time at UC Irvine. I grew up in Irvine, so I feel like we have a bond there. What was your experience like in Southern California? Oh, boy. Well, listen, uh, I lived in California for a few years, as you said, as a visiting professor at UC Irvine. But I, but my my relationship with Southern California goes back to 1985 because one of my brothers had moved to California, I think, in '84, and so in '85 was the first summer that I hung out in, in SoCal. At the time, he lived in Manhattan Beach, so he he moved from first Manhattan Beach. Then he moved to a place called uh, Villa Lido in Newport Beach, and then he moved to Laguna Beach. And so Southern California has been, you know, sort of a second home to me since the mid-'80s. But, uh, yeah, I mean, my experience is that uh, I'm desperate to return to live there permanently, and somehow I haven't found a way to, to make it out there on a permanent basis. All right. Well, we got to get you back. Somebody should hire you back. I, mean, I don't know how that works in the uh, the academic world that you are in, but uh, you know somebody should definitely bring you back. And so you are the professor of marketing at the uh, your professor of marketing at John Molson School of Business in Montreal, Concordia University there, and your your domain, I guess, that I was reading about psychological uh, evolutionary psychology, rather as applied to business. So for the person that's never heard of you, uh, Gad, how would you describe what you do day to day? Right. So, uh, I mean, I wear, uh, you mean specifically in my scientific career or across all different engagements? Well, just, just in general, for the layman who maybe has you know, heard about you on, yeah, I know you've been a lot of uh, podcasts and you've sure. done a lot of media sure, and stuff, sure. but, but for those that haven't heard of who, who you are, what exactly is your work? Yeah, so scientifically what, what I do is I... Uh, Mary, if you'd like, evolutionary biology, consumer psychology, well, as relevant in the business school. So basically what I look at are the fundamental biological drivers that make us the consumers that we are. And so how do our hormones affect our behavior? What, What happens to Ben and David to their testosterone levels if I put you in a Porsche? Uh, what happens to Ben and David's testosterone levels if you see another guy, a competitor in a Porsche? And as I'm, I'm sure you can predict, you can you could probably guess what will happen to your testosterone in, in those two scenarios. I look at things like how do women's ovulatory cycles, which is, of course, shaped by their own hormones, how that affects how they beautify themselves across the menstrual cycle. So I look at the biological, physiological drivers of consumer behavior. Now, that's really quite novel in the context of the business school because 
uh, until I came along and pioneered the field of evolutionary consumption, no one was ever applying biology to study who we are as managers, as employers, as employees, as uh, you know, personnel, uh, as financial traders, which struck me as insane, right? I mean, we don't suddenly lose our biological heritage when we put on our hats as boss or as employee or as consumer. And so over the much of my career, what I've been trying to do is what I call Darwinize the business school. So that's my scientific work. Now, I also am someone who's not a stay-in-your-lane professor. In other words, I like to mix it up. And so very early in my career, I decided that I also wanted to engage with the public. I didn't want to just publish you know, to, for fellow academics and fellow scientists. And so I weigh in on all sorts of issues, some of which are relevant to my scientific work and others that are not. So I'm really someone who likes to wear multiple hats. No, and, and I love that. And, and in this climate, though, and, and I know you're in Canada, but in this climate in general, like how how difficult has this been for you? Because you don't you know, keep your mouth shut on some things where a lot of other people don't say anything. You're actually putting your neck out there. So uh, how what has this last couple of years been like for you? It's very tough because, as you correctly pointed, uh, academia is probably the place that is most you know, parasitized by political bias. I mean, it's where all of the, what I call idea pathogens in my latest book, they all originate from academia. And so it's tough because, you know, if, it, you know, if being someone who is outspoken in Hollywood is tough or being someone who's outspoken in the media is tough, then you really don't want to be outspoken the way that I am in academia. Now, that's one of the reasons, by the way, why tenure is so important. I mean, not, by the way, not that, just because I have tenure, I, I haven't suffered a lot because I have, and I, I can share some stories. But, you know, one of the values of having tenure is precisely because it hopefully allows people who have the courage to speak out to do so because people can't just fire you on a whim. I mean, think about what happened to Socrates when he was executed in ancient Greece. Think about what happened to Galileo when he was placed under house arrest uh, during the Inquisition. And so, so having tenure affords me some protection, but it doesn't protect me from the 33 trillion death threats that I received. It doesn't protect me from a university in Southern California who was desperately keen on hiring me, but then upon some professors not liking the idea, they completely derailed the process. So I still bear many costs in, in speaking out, but at least tenure affords me some protection. Yeah, it's it's crazy times that we live in. But it seems like all these things that we're going through, as you as you know, because you work in that world, academia, like this, a lot of this started in academia. Like who who's the driving force behind this? Like I, I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. A lot of the things I just shake my head at that have been going on the last couple of years. But it, it started. Yeah. In academia. You know, who who's who's pulling the strings on this? Yeah. So uh, I often joke, although I'm actually being uh, very truthful in what I'm saying, it, that it takes academics and intellectuals to come up with some of the dumbest ideas. Uh, and so you're exactly right that all of these dreadful ideas uh, all stem from academia. So example, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one, and if you want to do more, we can, we can cover other ones. Uh, postmodernism is the idea that there are no objective truths. We are completely shackled by our subjectivity, by, uh, by our personal biases, by, you know, by relativity. You know, what's relatively true for you might be different for me. Well, that's a 
dreadfully bad idea because scientists wake up every morning under the working assumption that there are, you know, natural phenomena that we can investigate. As an evolutionary psychologist, I obviously study a, a shared human nature. There are things that make the Peruvian consumer and the Nigerian consumer and the Japanese consumer similar to each other precisely because they have a shared biological heritage. So postmodernism is, in a sense, what I call intellectual terrorism because it rejects the idea that there is anything as a fundamental objective truth. Now, the, the ones who come up with these kinds of you know, imbecilic ideas they don't suffer the consequences of their stupidity, right? So, for example, one of the reasons why you don't have many of these dumb ideas in the business school where I, where I reside, or say in engineering school, is because you can't build bridges using postmodernist physics. It doesn't exist. You can't, you can't build a mathematical model to understand consumer choice using postmodernist mathematics. And so this is why my discipline has been less parasitized by this kind of stupidity. But in other disciplines, in the humanities and in the social sciences, it's literally nonsense. Like if you walk in as a layperson and see some of the stuff that your children might be taught, you wouldn't believe that this is actually being taught, right? I mean, I receive emails, guys, from adults you know, a 50-year-old person will write to me and say, you know, dear Dr. Saad, I hope you don't mind if I ask you a question. I just want to know, I mean, is it still acceptable to say that only women uh, menstruate, or is that no longer biologically uh, acceptable? So the fact that a 50-year-old person in the 21st century has to contact me because he has lost the confidence to know whether it's only women who menstruate or whether it's people who menstruate tells you how far down the abyss of lunacy we've gotten. Doc, speaking of that lunacy and getting into this with you, you had mentioned that obviously things have been going on where the intellectuals and some don't don't have that kind of repercussion that other individuals do. Um, where did we turn where we couldn't question things? We can process or at least attempt to process information but it seems like more and more now in the day and age that we can't question anything anymore. Why is that? Well, it really, again, starts, I mean, and I hate to keep, you know, putting the blame on, on universities because, of course, universities are also the purveyors of, of, of great enrichment and great knowledge and so on. But it really starts in the universities where the reflex in the universities has been to truly create sterile echo chambers when it comes to you know, uh, idea diversities, right? And here I'd, I'd love to, if I could take a minute or two to analogize from something from evolutionary medicine. So in evolutionary medicine, uh, there is this concept known as the hygiene hypothesis. The idea being that, for example, if you want to raise children who are not going to suffer from asthma, you should raise them in an environment where they are exposed to allergens you know, pet dander, for example, because their immune system will then develop uh, a, the proper immunological re response to allergens. So your immune system expects to be triggered by allergens. Otherwise, you will end up having respiratory ailments if you grow up in a sterile environment. Well, this brilliant uh, neuropsychiatrist, then, and, and I discussed this in the book, he analogized this concept to, you know, uh, ideological echo chambers, right? Our brains, I argue in the book, have evolved 
to be exposed to allergens. In this case, allergens are opposing ideas, right? I become a better debater if I learn what is your opposing idea. Our, our big brains expect to be challenged, and yet what we've done over the past 40, 50, 60 years is create perfectly uniform echo chambers in universities. And the way I demonstrate this in the parasitic mind is I just cite studies that show the breakdown of Democrat versus Republican political affiliations of professors, and it is absolutely insane. In some fields, it's in the order of, you know, 44 to 0, you know, 100 to 1. So how could you then have well-trained young adults go into the world when they are truly, absolutely being exposed to only one side of two issues? It's grotesque, and that's what I fight against. So on that note then, Doc, why, because you are active on social media, Ben and I have seen as much, um, why take shots at some of the celebrities and athletes in our domain that feel like they're above reproach? Because in a sense, it's almost like a no-win situation, right, where they're not going to acknowledge what you are saying as a retort, even though you are correct. So why do that? Right, so uh, because they've got gigantic platforms, and, and, and by the way, I, I get asked that many times. Right? Why does someone you know, like you with your credentials worry about what Sarah Silverman says? Or, well, because Sarah Silverman has you know, 25 times my platform. Mm. LeBron James has I don't know how many times my platform. So in other words, uh, you know, any syllable that LeBron James utters, regrettably, will carry more weight than the 100 top intellectuals put together. So by sometimes going to their platform, and challenging them, I'm recognizing as a good professor of marketing that I sometimes have to take the message to where the consumers are, right? I mean, if I only speak to my highfalutin, highbrow, ivory tower dwelling <laughs> colleagues in the Ivy Leagues, I might convince them, but that's 25 people, right? But if I go to LeBron James, 30 million people, or however many, and I can get 1% of them to rethink their position, from an impact perspective, I've been quite impactful. So I'm not so haughty and so elitist as to think that I am above communicating with everyone. That's why sometimes I will engage someone on social media that has two followers. Most of my colleagues would never you know, stoop to communicating with the great unwashed, and that's why I call myself the professor of the people. Well, with the marketing aspect then, Doc, do you feel like our society is dumber or smarter because of social media? I mean, it's a two-edged sword because on the one hand, of course, uh, social media allows for the rapid velocity, you know, spread of information, right? I mean, I can get on Joe Rogan and then he could tweet something and I could have more impact based on that tweet than I could in writing, you know, 25 academic papers. So on the one hand, of course, social media affords us unbelievable opportunities to spread messages. But of course, the other side of the coin is that it allows all sorts of you know, uh, uh, enemies of reason to also proliferate their message. So I guess the question is, are you a good enough consumer of information to know which information is the vertical one and which is the BS one? And that's why I always keep fighting in the battle of ideas, because I always get so upset when I see garbage being espoused by all sorts of people.
Yeah, and Doc, and you're following up on that. You know, I, we we are on social media, obviously, all the time. Everyone is uh, in our, you know, in the media business that I work in. And you know, how much of it is real? I've I've taken the position it's kind of like the Matrix, right? That you know, you don't know what's real and what's fake, and there's a lot of bots and algorithms and all that. And it's it, it it's really like as you you deal with the human reaction to you know business and products and whatnot. It, isn't this a form of mind manipulation in many ways at the same time? Because you really don't know, as you said, you don't know what's real, what's not, and and who's trying to pull your chain. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, uh, on a kind of related note, I I I realized that. Via my use of satire, so for your listeners who may or may not know this, one of the many tools of persuasion that I use is, you know, I'm very, very heavy on satire and sarcasm, right, and irony. And so oftentimes I rejoice in having a major media outlet not realize that I was being sarcastic and then share my stuff thinking that I actually meant what I said when I was actually being perfectly sarcastic. And as, as I guess you guys know, this, that's very much Paul's law. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was PJ Media. Or, I mean, one of these major outlets had put out the top 10 dumbest quotes of the year. And I think I had landed at number five, or I can't remember, the, like, of, of the whole year. They didn't realize that I was aping all of the progressive platitudes. I was being sarcastic, and of course, once they realized it, they very you know quietly removed my quote. But I, I rejoice in being able to 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 fool all of these imbeciles because uh, it demonstrates what kind of lunatic world we live in. <laughs> I, I loved your uh, your video the other day about you know what's going on. Obviously, you, you're very tied in. You grew up in the Middle East, and and what's been going on the last couple of weeks there, and you issued an apology of video which was that was a 10 doc i that was uh outstanding i mean how, oh thank how, you yeah how how weird you know how weird if people obviously look to you for you know help everyone's got different opinions on what's going on with with israel and the in, in the middle east and all that and and you you obviously live there you you have your family from there and whatnot i mean how, how weird is it you know seeing this and it's been going on your entire life everyone's entire life like it's how how uh, weird is that whole situation from your perspective? Because you you know firsthand what what goes on in that part of the country or part sure. of the world. So yeah. Uh, so I mean, for your listeners who may not know this, I we are we meaning my family were part of the last remaining Lebanese Jews in Lebanon. Uh, you know, the Middle East had a, a you know a, a sizable, albeit small, minority of. Arabic Jews, so Iraqi, Iraqi Jews, Syrian Jews, Egyptian Jews, Lebanese Jews, but then they all, you know, slowly either left or magically disappeared, uh, and we were part of the steadfastly, you know, stayed in Lebanon despite the fact that there were, you know, warning signs that it was no longer a good idea to be Jewish uh, in Lebanon, and then in the mid '70s when the civil war began. It really wasn't possible to be Jewish in Lebanon, and so we were in Lebanon for the first year of the Civil War, and then we were lucky to escape. And I, I discuss all this in the first chapter of The Parasitic Mind, and I discuss it in the context of identity politics, because I explain to people that to the extent that you now have one of the two major parties in the United States, the Democrats, that are basing everything on identity politics, I'm, I'm, I'm giving people a warning because Lebanon is exactly what happens to a society when it perfectly adheres to identity politics, right? So the, the end downstream effects of 
having identity politics rule your life is called Lebanon. And so anyway, so we left Lebanon and moved to Montreal, Canada. My parents kept returning to Lebanon because we still had, you know, some businesses there and so on. And then in 1980, they were kidnapped by Fatah, which is a Palestinian group. And our, our home itself, our, our home in Beirut, was occupied by Palestinians, Palestinian refugees. And so, yes, I'm very, very familiar with the, with the area. Now, look, I don't hold any ill will against Palestinians because... Yes, there were Muslim militia that wanted to kill us in Lebanon, but it's also Palestinian militia who protected us and drove us out of, you know, out of to the to the Beirut International Airport. So I don't condemn people based on the action of someone else, right? So by the same token, it, it breaks my heart that Jews now are being attacked all over the place, including in Montreal, because you know they're Jewish and hence somehow they are collectively guilty for what Israel. You know, uh, you know, is doing, uh, it, you know, to Palestinians and so on. Uh, I frankly think it's an intractable problem. I, I don't think that it will ever be solved until people recognized recognize their common humanity. The problem in the Middle East is that that's probably never going to happen because everything, as I said, is viewed through through tribal allegiance through the religion that you belong to. And unfortunately, very few of those tribes view the Jews positively. And so I I fear that these realities will always exist. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Be sure to catch live editions of the Ben Maller Show weekdays at 2 a.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. Pacific. Be sure to catch live editions of the Ben Maller Show weekdays at 2 a.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. And, Doc, on that note with tribalism, I mean, Ben and I talk about this at pretty good length because it has now seeped and bled into sports, into our arena of, of work and enjoyment where – 
now it seems like you're either on one side of the aisle or the other side of the aisle. Uh, do you think that the power of money has has pushed this thing to the edge where it's it's irreversible? That sports and I guess media as as a whole will, will never get back to a constructive black and white like this is exactly what it's intended for information or for sports entertainment do you think we ever get back to something like that well i hope that we're able to get back to a time where people don't take their political positions in arenas where those arenas precisely exist so that we don't act tribal in in a tribal way right so Sports is a place where, uh, you know, I could hopefully forget that I'm Jewish or Muslim or I support the Democrats or Republicans, and I have allegiance to whatever, the Dallas Cowboys, right? I mean, it's, it's an opportunity for people to look for their common love for, for competition. And by the way, just to link it, link your question about sports to what we were talking about in the previous question in the Middle East, in, in my book, I talk about... Uh, the following story, because it relates to sports. My brother, actually the brother that I mentioned earlier who had moved to California in, the, in 1984, my brother was, a, was uh, the champion of judo, judo champion of Lebanon several years in a row. And he actually, by the way, uh, represented Lebanon in the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. Well, in, around 1973, 1974, before the Civil War started, he was visited by some men who told him that it was time for him to retire because you know it's not a good look for a jew to constantly be winning a combat sport and so the writing was on the wall he wasn't going to quit his judo career so he moved to paris france where actually the french are very good at judo historically and he continued his career there but now listen to the irony the guy who had to leave lebanon because he was a jew who was always winning the lebanese championship his jewishness no longer mattered when it came to him representing Lebanon in the 1976 Olympics. At that point, they were willing to forgive, you know, that dirtiness of him being a Jew. So that shows you what happens when we start incorporating all these tribal divisions within sports. Sports should unite us, not divide us. So it's yeah. really regrettable. Yeah, I mean, we, we, have, we have issues now with meritocracy, it seems like. like you can't... The scoreboard doesn't matter anymore, it feels like. Even outside the, the sports world, you know, resumes with degrees, whether it's a bachelor's, a master's, a PhD, it doesn't matter anymore. I mean, here in California, they're doing away with standardized testing for for universities. I mean, Well, it, 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 it's actually much worse than that. Yeah. So uh, at, the, at the academic level, so in academia, you would think that just like a 100-meter dash is judged based on who crosses the line first, right? Uh, I mean, it, if, if there's ever a, a, a case of a pure meritocracy, it would be the 100-meter dash. Well, you would think that academic excellence, you know, for professors should be the same. But now chaired professorships, so the highest level of professorships that are endowed by the Canadian government are bestowed a lot more based on what I call the die religion. Die is an acronym that I use for diversity, inclusion, and equity, right? So I call it the die religion because the application of die principles is exactly where meritocracy goes to die, right? So, so we no longer judge you based on the strength of your scientific dossier. We judge you if you are the right skin you, if you've got the right gender orientation or sexual orientation or ethnicity. I mean, it is 
really grotesque. And what upsets me the most is that all of this perfectly illiberal nonsense is cloaked under the robe of progressivism, right? I mean, in the old days, the racists wore robes. They were called the KKK, and we disavowed them. But today they wear cloaks, the robes of progressivism. They could be fully racist, and we're supposed to say, wow, bravo, bravo, it's so great to hire people based on their skin color. It's grotesque. I mean, for someone like me who escaped the Middle East, it breaks my heart to see what we're doing to the West. Yeah, and, and Doc, I mean, we saw this week the mayor of Chicago, a uh, major city, obviously, in the oh, US yeah. here, saying uh, they would, uh, she would only uh, or limit the media interviews to people of color. Uh, we, not, not people of color, journalists of color. Yeah, yeah, journalists of color. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It, it, I despise this fill-in-the-blank of color, communities of color, soccer players of color. I mean, I guarantee you that in 10 years, some, some, some you know, uh, language police person will arise and say, it is no longer acceptable to say this. And you know what? I will be the one clapping because I find it ridiculous. What, what is this journalist of color? What is a prof- a, by the way, in universities now, you have all these activist students who will you know, occupy the president's office saying things like, we need a speaker series of color. We need mentor of colors. We need <laughs> mathematicians of color. Uh, really? I thought mathematics is where you leave your identity at the door, right? The distribution of prime numbers is the distribution of prime numbers irrespective of whether I'm indigenous or an orthodox Jew or an uh, Islamic imam. I mean, it's insane. Doc, on a lighter note, I, I know obviously the, the parasitic mind is something that, that Ben and I have talked about a little bit, but you guys do share a, uh, something else in common, and it's the, uh, it's the diet. Now, Ben is a huge fan of the intermittent fasting, and I know that you're getting the, uh, the pounds down, too. What inspired you to, to lose the weight, and, uh, and do, you dip it, do you dip your toes into the deep end of the uh, intermittent fasting at all? Right, yeah. Thank, well, thank you for that uh, personal question. Uh, so actually, I just weighed myself today. I'm at 192, which is the lowest I've been probably, I don't know, in 20 years. Uh, 192 is still way too heavy for someone of my height, uh, so probably another 20 pounds would be ideal. Uh, but as I always joke, I always need to keep a bit of extra fat because thin gat will cause social uh, strife and will cause marital instability. <laughs> Thin God is simply too good looking to walk in, in public. But in any case, uh, what, what, what motivated me to do it is frankly uh, uh, the realization that I have young children and I want to put all the odds in my favor. And for many years, I've wanted to lose weight. I would sort of lose a bit of weight, but then I would plateau. And finally, I said, look, this is not rocket science. There's got to be a way for me to train enough. Although I've always been very athletic, but Really, of course, as you know, the main problem is what you put in your mouth. And so I think this time the way that I've been able to crack it is I try to keep my food to about 1,500, 1,600 calories a day, and I always do at least 15,000 steps. So I call it the 1515 you know, regimen. And the weight has come off to the tune of about 40 pounds since January 1st. Intermittent fasting, I've only done it within the daily window. So, like, for example, I've gone on those... 16-hour windows where I don't eat. But I haven't done intermittent fasting in the sense of, you know, some folks will do, you know, 48-hour fast. So it's nothing that severe, but I've certainly dabbled with the 12- to 16-hour windows, if that's what you mean. 
Yeah, Doug, I love food, and I was a very large man uh, for a long time. And I, the only way I've really been able to keep the weight off is the intermittent fasting. But because I, you know, once I start eating, it's hard. I cannot, I don't know how you do the 1,600 calories a day thing because I, once I get going, uh, it's very hard to stop. I've got a wife who, uh, I call her Gestapo mode. When she when she gets on it and she sees me hovering around the kitchen, she'll give me one of those looks. I will swallow my uh, saliva and go back and sit down. That's maybe that's what it is. I mean, I'm joking. She's she's not that uh, diabolical. She's very sweet, yeah. very lovely. But uh, look, I, I really think it's having having young children really helps. Uh, uh, you know, I used to when I would get on a flight before, I never thought about the plane crashing. Whereas the minute that I had a child and I would get on a plane, I would have this whole existential angst. What if the plane crash? I'll never see them grow up. I'll never. So I think that really accelerated my desire to lose weight because I want to be hopefully around for a long time and being very overweight is not really the, I mean, there aren't too many hundred, hundred year olds who are, you know, 50 pounds overweight, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You go to the, uh, the retirement homes. There's not a lot of uh, large people in the retirement homes, <laughs> exactly. unfortunately. But uh, but I want to go back to what, you know some of the things, uh, the issues of the day here. And I saw something you said the other day. Uh, you, you said that this whole woke revolution is like a religion, and I, I thought that was that was great because it, it seems like everyone's trying to one up each other and trying to be more more woke, wokey McWoke, and all that. Can you can you expand on uh, what you were getting at with that phrase, Doc? Well, so, I mean, what's a religion? It has certain revealed truths that are inviolable, right? So uh, the difference between science and religion is that science always operates under provisional truths, meaning what? We might think something is true, and we might think it's true for 300 years, but if new data comes in that causes us to reevaluate what we thought was was true for hundreds of years, then we have what's called the epistemic humility to alter our beliefs. Of course, religion doesn't operate that way, right? It is true because my book says it's true, and therefore it's true because it's in my book. That's, what, that's why we say it's revealed truth. It is impervious to uh, falsification. Well, a lot of the woke tenets are exactly that, right? There is a tenet, right? You are no longer allowed to say that there are two sexes, that the default phenotypes of male and female are of humans is male and female. That's not acceptable. I have to say that there are 873 genders, and that's the revealed truth. And if I don't say that, I should be canceled, right? In the Middle East, we just execute you. In the West, we, we only cancel your career and ostracize you, right? So, so in that sense, there is this, you know, uh, blindness to incoming information, because it's a form of quasi-secular religion. So it's in that sense that I compared it to. The other thing that I would say that is very similar between religion and wokeness, and I, I discussed this in the parasitic mind, is so if so Sharia law is the is Islamic law. And under Islamic law it is exactly antithetical to the US justice system. The US justice system is supposed to be blind, right? Blind to your identity. Well Sharia law is exactly not that, right? So for example if a Muslim man kills a Jewish man, it's a very different penalty than if it's the other way around. And that's codified in Sharia law. Well, progressivism or woke, wokeism is exactly like Sharia law, right? So if I can say the N-word depends on whether what my color of skin is, right? So the crime, whether it be a linguistic crime or a thought crime or an actual physical crime, 
depends on the identity of the perpetrator and the victim. So the progressives are thinking that they are being liberal, whereas in reality they are mimicking Sharia law from which I escaped. It's grotesque, and in that sense... Wokeism is just another grotesque religion. Doc, in a sense, too, it almost sounds like you can classify the United States as a religion, right? You go to Texas, you go to Florida, you might go to Oklahoma. It's a lot different of a feeling in nature and also mind than it would be if you came here to California or Washington or or Oregon. You know, countries that are, are states that are blue versus the states that are red, yes? It, it, that's true, and, but this is why, by the way. So, if you want, look, look, to be tribal is really to be human. So, we, we have a evolved coalitional psychology where we view the world as blue team and red team, us versus them. Mm-hmm. So, so it's very difficult to eradicate that instinct to be coalitional or tribal. But one of the beauties of the American experience is that it places the Constitution. I mean, not to. It almost sounds like I'm being religious here, but the Constitution as a as a document is what then unites Americans. And, and, and I'm amazed that I have to be the one saying this as a Canadian and speaking to Americans, right? Mm-hmm. So it should be that we don't have blue states and red states, but we only have allegiance to the Constitution. That's what made America the great experience, the great uh, you know, societies that you've built over 200-plus years. But now we don't have that. We don't have adherence to the Constitution. We have adherence to parties. And hence, we are succumbing to that basal instinct of tribalism. Yeah, I mean, it's really shameful. And people forget, obviously, we are a constitutional republic. And exactly, democracy, democracy is one thing, but obviously, the, the republic is another. But don't you? Do you feel though? I guess in that sense, because when you look at some of the things that make up the country right now, at least the United States, they are dominated by one political party. So you can't help in certain circumstances that you need to acquiesce. To, to the ones that are writing the paycheck for you? Uh, look, I mean, I understand the, the stressors, uh, and I understand that you know, people shouldn't be unnecessary martyrs, but whenever people send me, I mean, I receive you know, a million emails in, in a given week, and many of them will kind of end with the following final sentence. Uh, you know, I, I love you, Dr. Saad. Thank you for your courage, blah, blah. Please, if you're going to read my email, don't mention my identity, right? <laughs> yeah. So if you are so cowardly that you're not even courageous enough to simply stand next to the one who's taking all the risks, how should we contextualize your cowardice comparing it to, say, the young men who landed on Normandy and knew that they would be mowed down by Nazi machine guns like little insignificant mosquitoes so that you and I could be sitting having this conversation today. Uh, How does your cowardice compare to that? So in a war, whether it be an ideological war or an actual physical war, there are casualties. That's why it's called a war. So I understand that everybody wants to be safe, But you also have to be anti-fragile, right? So when I see kids today complaining about whatever they complain about, you know, my God, maybe I'm going to be misgendered. I say, yeah, you should have lived 10 minutes of my childhood in Lebanon where I didn't know every minute whether I was going to live to the next minute. So people have to stop being invertebrates. They have to grow a spine. We are a vertebrate species. We have a spine. So try to find your spine. Try to grow a pair, if I can be colloquial in that way, yeah. and uh, speak out. Now, you don't have to be an unnecessary martyr, but you don't 
subcontract your voice to those who are willing to take the risk for you. You have to activate your inner honey badger and speak out. So, Doc, that, that in a way, in a roundabout way, it does sound like you you are acknowledging that I am. I'm brave for working with Ben Maller because uh, <laughs> his show and his audience is uh, they are relentless on their attacks. So uh, yeah, we gotta have a. You pair. are my hero. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gotta yeah. have a pair work with Ben. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, this whole cancel culture thing, right? Like, uh, you know, is is there any going back? I mean, I, I, I remember when I was a kid and, and people, you know, back in my day and we, you know, I didn't have the life you had, obviously, but, uh, you know, in my life experience, I had a, a mother that was liberal. I had a father that was conservative and they would battle it out at the dinner table and then they'd hug it out. I had buddies of mine that, you know, we were from different backgrounds and we'd bust each other's chops and then we'd be fine. But now it's like, if you don't, if you're not in lockstep, as we've talked about, and you've gone into great detail here, you, you know, you've got to, you know, distance yourself or, now the cancel culture what's the path to getting back to closer to the way it was doc right it has to be costly for the cretans who are promulgating the cancel culture ethos right uh, right now there are no consequences to their tactics so let me give you an example if i start engaging someone on Twitter about some issue, whatever, the Israeli-Palestinian thing, right? You, you may have a different position from mine, and we, 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 we look it out on, on Twitter, and then whatever, either I convince you or you convince me or we don't budge in our respective positions, and we live to love another day. But now what they will do is they will then tag my university and say, how do you keep this guy, this, this, this uh, you know, uh, justifier of the genocide of the Palestinians, and they start tagging my university. Well, I can't engage in the same terrorist tactics on them because, I, you know, they're not public figures. I don't know where they were, even though I would never do it to them. So that asymmetry, the fact that they can try to terrorize me in this way without any repercussions on them is what emboldens them to do it, right? The fact that administrators in universities allow this nonsense to take place by allowing the you know blue-haired people to deplatform everyone with whom they disagree is what but now let's suppose a donor who's giving a hundred million dollars to this university suddenly says if a single person at this university is deplatformed in the next 10 years you won't get a cent from me suddenly that 100 million dollars that i might lose as the president of that university suddenly my ears perk up so in other words we have to incentivize these Cretans into fighting against cancel cultures. As long as there are no costs for the mob not coming after you and terrorizing you, it will go on. So what I'd like to see is that people wake up. By the way, you're starting to see it now with critical race theory, right? So a lot of parents are now mobilizing to fight against this nonsense. And I can assure you that if more and more parents start going to these uh, you know, education board meetings and screaming and shouting against the racist nonsense of critical race theory, it will suddenly uh, disappear and the administrators will acquiesce. So there is no magic recipe. People have to be engaged and we can hopefully very quickly turn this around. Now, Doc, I don't know if you're aware of this, but this sounds an awful lot like SEC football. Like SEC football is king in the United States when it comes to college athletics and donors will have the heads of head coaches that they can't perform and compete against the Alabamas of the world or Georgia or Tennessee or, or whatnot. So uh, it sounds like a lockstep football kind of brings the country back into the full swing with, with unity. <laughs> well, um, 
Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say uh, when you when you mention critical race theory, you're actually going to be speaking with someone that's been a driving force on the pushback in, in Christopher Rufo, right? Exactly. This Monday, actually. Uh, well, tomorrow I'm speaking to Amy Chua, who is the uh, colloquially she's referred to as the Tiger Mom. She she's a Yale University uh, law school professor who wrote, uh, I mean, she's written many books, one of which actually is relevant to what we were talking about, tribes. She wrote a book on, uh, you know, political tribes and so on. But earlier she had written a book about, uh, you know, the battle hymn of the tiger mom. And she's a real honey badger, right, because she's existing in an ecosystem of ultra-liberals. And, she, you know, she certainly is a lot more conservative, and she doesn't just, you know, conform to the ideology. And Christopher Rufo, with whom I'll be speaking on my show on Monday, has become a real nemesis to all these uh, CRT, you know, racists because he, you know, they're winning legal, you know, legal uh, victory over legal victory all over the country. So look, this guy didn't start off, you know, with with the clear idea that that's what he was going to be, but for whatever reason, and I guess we'll talk about it on Monday. He decided he wants to take on this, uh, you know, he wants to take on this mantle and and look where it's gotten him. So, you know. Often I will get people who write to me and say, well, you know, I don't have Joe Rogan's platform. I, I'm not some fancy professor with your platform, professor. I, well, who's going to listen to me? Well, you, you, don't, you don't have to affect change in the millions. If your professor says something that is, you know, imbecilic and contrary to common sense, why don't you challenge him or her politely? If, if your friend says something at the pub that you disagree with, rather than worrying about if you disagree with him, he might unfriend you, why don't you grow a pair and actually challenge him politely? So in other words, we can affect change within the small sphere of influence of our daily lives. And, and, and I guess Christopher Rufo is, is a perfect example of that. He didn't start off as a fancy professor or as Joe Rogan. And look at the influence he has now. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Doc, one last question for me uh, sure. before Ben sends it out. Um, do you feel that the political activities of the far left are sophisticated marketing programs? I mean, I don't know. I mean, yes and no. I mean, they're, they're, they're smart in that they found a way to infiltrate and then dominate all of the key structures that define intelligentsia, journalism, academia, Hollywood. Now, I don't think that that was sort of a planned conspiratorial thing. On the other hand, as you probably have all heard, the, the standard joke that, you know, the right has better memes, the right has better sense of humor. Yeah. So I don't think that you know, marketing ability is restricted to one political tribe or another. I think, though, that to the extent that all of the choke points of the intelligentsia are completely controlled by one party, they don't even need to have good marketing because they control the full narrative, right? I mean, you have Fox in the U.S., and that's it, right? Who, who else uh, has an opposing view to the mainstream media? So I think that's what's unhealthy. And if we can just infuse diversity of thought at each of these structures, we'll be a much more vibrant and healthy society. Well, Doc, I know we've taken more of your time than we said we would. Uh, <laughs> bad job by us. But uh, how, how can, for those, you know, you mentioned the book, we mentioned it a few times, Parasitic Mind. How can people find it? You've got a YouTube channel, which is very popular, which is great. And I, I know you're obviously very big on Twitter. How can people follow you, get the book, the whole thing, promote all of this, Doctor? Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, so my, my book, my latest book is called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. They can certainly get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Uh, 
My Twitter handle is at Gad, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. I have a podcast and a YouTube channel. It's called The Sad Truth, S-A-A-D. I have a public uh, Facebook page. I'm everywhere. I haunt your dreams. It's not difficult to find me. <laughs> hey, listen, you're going to be dangerous, man, if you come west of the 405 back to Manhattan Beach, Doc. You lose a little bit more weight. No, no, you can come back to Ir- <laughs> Ir- Irvine. Is is west and east of the 405. So you could you could be in Irvine and be east of the 405. Anyway, Doc, thank you so much. Have a great day. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Cheers, guys. Ciao. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Be sure to catch live editions of the Ben Maller Show weekdays at 2 a.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. Pacific. Be sure to catch live editions of the Ben Maller Show weekdays at 2 a.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card... Right this way. It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. 
Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.